listeners of the History of Westeros. Hope you're all doing well. It's good to see that you are listening to the latest episode of the History of Westeros. Tune in with Aziz, because he does what he does very, very well indeed. Might be wondering who I am. My name is Zach Twomley, and I run the podcast When Diplomacy Fails. But before we get into that, I just want to set a tiny bit of context for you. You see... Obviously, Game of Thrones, you're a big fan of it. Game of Thrones involves loads of feuding families, talking to each other, warring against each other, scheming against each other. And in many ways, that's what I do in my podcast. You see, When Diplomacy Tells is a history podcast, but instead of scheming families, instead of these different houses on Westeros itself, we have all of Europe. We have the world. We have these different countries, many of which were, of course, led by powerful dynasties and families, from the Habsburgs to the Bourbons to the Stuarts to the Romanovs to the House of Orange. In many ways, it was a family affair. But When Diplomacy Fails covers it all. When Diplomacy Fails specializes in covering the diplomacy, the build-up to war, the breakout of war, and the consequences of those different wars in history. Maybe you'll come and stop by if that sounds like your thing. You should also know that, at this very moment in time, when Diplomacy Fails is five years old, and to celebrate this, we're doing lots of special stuff. Above all, you should know we're doing this thing called Five Weeks to Run Wild, which basically means that we're releasing two episodes every day for five weeks. It's a bit crazy, but you should also know that your humble host, Mr. Aziz himself, took part in one of these episodes. That's right, I managed to take Aziz away from his very busy schedule and have a nice sit-down chat with him about everything from history to fantasy to whether people who love one can love the other. All sorts of wonderful stuff. If you want to check that out, my name again is Zach and I run When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. Simply go to wdfpodcast.com and you'll follow the links from there. A huge thanks again to Aziz for giving us this wonderful podcast. And I hope to see all of you guys very, very soon. Hey, everybody. We are live here on a Saturday. It's June 17th, not long before Game of Thrones TV season gets started. So we're taking the opportunity to take one last chance to answer questions regarding the books only. So no show talk today, with the exception of one question that we've got saved at the end, which I think is just too relevant to not discuss. You'll see when we get there. The second half of this episode is where we're going to have all the questions related to the Winds of Winter spoilers. The first half, we're going to only be answering questions that have nothing to do with the Winds of Winter, the answers, nor the questions, so you can be, you can feel free to keep up with that and not worry about being spoiled, and we'll be very clear about when we get to the second half and when those announcements begin, when the spoilers start. As you can see here, we've got a lot of different things going on on our screen. If you're listening on iTunes... After the fact, well, I suppose these changes are transparent to you, but take our word for it. We've got a lot of cool new visuals. If you're watching on YouTube after the fact, or if you're with us live right now, you can see we've got a lot of these cool things going on. we got new images on the screen. You've got art that you can recognize from our previous videos. And, of course, we've got the our mascot dragon versions there, both the Ed Shear and Azani versions of Masla Cartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, ridden by Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, as well as thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. So I'm going to uh, also point out that we have Ashea with me here on the side, running things from a production angle. Yeah, a lot of work to be done with this live stream, so she's got to focus on that while I handle the questions. So big thanks to her for that. And also a shout out to our buddy Don the Kraken Wit, who did a lot of background work helping us 
get used to this new software that we're trying out today. So bear with us just in case we have any hiccups. I think it's going to go smoothly, but we are trying out new software and we might have a few issues. Speaking of new software, this is what we're going to be using during the Game of Thrones season. I'm going to start with a question from Jiri Dvorak. Now, real quick before I get to the question, we've got a lot of questions we've gotten in advance. Those questions are going to be, for the most part, be put up on screen. And it there's a bit of a difference between questions we get in advance and questions we get live. We're very grateful to the live questions, people who are here participating, sending us questions, and we're taking them in right now, incorporating them into the feed, into the queue. Uh, but questions that get asked in advance, there is something to be said for that because we get to think about it a little more. We get to prepare, get to do a little research. So we like both kinds of questions, but I just wanted to explain the difference between the two. With that in mind, any questions that were asked live, I'm going to just read them out loud. Questions that were asked in advance are also going to be on screen so you can see them. Now, again, this first question from Jiri Dvorak. Hello, ANA. What is the show coverage plan for the podcast this season? Are the non-show episodes going to be on hold? What about fandom media? Better Call Saul is sick this season, by the way. Thanks for the question, Jerry. A couple different questions there. The show coverage plan is pretty much the same as it was the last two years, so that confirms that we are going to have Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy from Radio Westeros back joining us for show only, or sorry, for book to show discussions. And Sean of House Beard will be returning for show only coverage. And we are not going to put the non-show episodes on hold, although we'll probably only get one episode, non-show episode, out during the season. It's possible we'll get another one. The next episode of that regard will be Blackfish. And that episode is very close to complete already. Got a big head start on that one. And as far as fandom media, if you're not familiar with fandom media, Sean and I do have a second podcast. It's not on video. We just do it on iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud. I'm sorry, it's not on SoundCloud yet, <laughs> but we are working on that. It's a show review uh, podcast where we review a variety of TV shows. Right now, we're doing Better Call Saul, as Jerry mentioned. We've also done The Expanse. We've done Black Sails. We've done It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Season 12, and several other shows coming up later this year. And if you participate and, and check out Fandom Media, you can suggest other shows for us to cover as well. Okay, so I think that covers that question. And now for the first question sent in advance. This is from Anthony Gonzalez. You can see here on the screen, what are your thoughts on what Varus possibly got out of Ned in the black cells? Some kind of letter or note? Or more importantly, what do you speculate it pertains to? Well, let me take a step back and just comment on that scene in general because it's so important. Ned's scene with Varus in the black cells is his final chapter. His execution comes a few chapters later. Of course, that's not through his point of view. It's from Arya's point of view. So Ned suggests in this chapter that his life is not worth more than his honor. But when Sansa's life is mentioned, he loses all his resolve. He's not worried about his own life, but his, the life of his daughters and his other children especially. But in this case, Sansa's the one who's mentioned matters to him far more than even that. Varys' main objective here, now remember, at the time, when you're reading this chapter in Game of Thrones, Varys' plan is far from clear. It's not even completely clear now. But what most of what we know about it is comes in a dance with dragons. So at this point in the Game of Thrones, Varys' endgame is extremely hidden. So we have to remember where he's at later to be able to figure out where he's at then. So his main objective is to put Aegon VI on the throne. And like I said, even though this isn't revealed until four books later, we have to look through that lens. So 
Consider earlier in the book, Game of Thrones, Arya overhears Illyrio and Varys discussing that war is coming, but much sooner than they would like. Illyrio asks Varys to delay. And they, the point of this is they want the realm to be destabilized so that the Aegon VI can come in and be the hero, rescue the kingdom, and that acclaim will help carry him to the Iron Throne and make sure that the people love him, which means the kind of king that rarely faces rebellion, the ones who are loved. But as Arya hears, this is too soon. They don't want the lion and the wolf at each other's throats at this point. Maybe later that would be fine. Aegon VI at this point is too young to make his claim. Khal Drogo hasn't had his son yet. And Khal Drogo is part of the plan because they need to, they're conning him into attacking Westeros by threatening Daenerys. Or by actually killing her. Now, Ned's stubbornness in this case is a huge obstacle to Varys and Illyrio's plans. They don't want Stannis to be king for both personal, Varys hates magic, and political reasons. They want the weak party in, in play so that they can more easily knock them off and show, hey, look, look how much better our regime is than the previous regime. Stannis is too strong and he's a good commander. I don't think they really want to face that. So they get by having Varys admit or having Varys get Ned to admit falsely that he committed treason, this war is averted. If Ned takes the black, remember that's what Varys seemed to want, which would allow peace to return. If Ned is executed, what happens is what happens. We get war. But if he goes to take the black, that's an honorable retirement for a northern lord. So that's not a cause for war. Even if bad things happen to Ned, even if they can say the Lannisters cheated Ned, they you know, they did bad things to him, it's not a Cassus belly. It's not enough to go to war. But cutting his head off, well, that's where Joffrey comes in. <laughs> Varys' plan was proceeding. And then if you recall, in that scene, when he Joffrey kind of changes his mind and announces that he's going to cut Ned's head off, not only is it Cersei immediately realize what a huge mistake that is and tries to stop him. Varys waves his arms. He runs at, at Joffrey and is like, no, do not do this. And of course, no one listens. Joffrey does his thing, and here we are. So to summarize all that, Varys and Lyra have this complicated multi-pronged plan to destabilize the realm and install their own claimant on the throne. And Ned was, was an obstacle to that. He was messing it all up. So... What do you do? They couldn't just kill him. He told Illyria that. I said, one hand is not the other. You know, he's referring, Illyria refers to the fact that John Aaron was murdered. And well, he's like, we can't just do that. And this is why. Look what happened when Ned was killed. That got, that started a war. So they couldn't just off him. Too risky. They would have been fine with Ned just going to take the black and sitting out. If, if the North just sits out the upcoming wars, then that's a totally fine result for Varys and Illyria. Okay, so, so to summarize the final answer there, Varys probably got Ned to agree to take the black in, in exchange for a pledge of protection for Sansa, as well as admitting to his treason. I don't think there's anything more than that, but I think that's a lot. Okay, next question we have from a faceless patron. The faceless man level is a $30 level on our Patreon campaign that gets you three votes for special episodes, as well as total anonymity. We have, the question is, regarding the runic armor of the Royces, the Seastone Chair, and Dawn. In general, this question... Well, I'll read the rest of it. Where my head started spinning was that these three ancient artifacts could be connected and may have once belonged to the same person. Perhaps the last hero, there is nothing in the text that indicates the last hero was a king or had a throne before or after the long night, though some stories in the Far East may give us more hints. Or perhaps a hero from the ancient empire of the dawn or someone else lost history entirely. The point is that 
If they are connected and one person sat on the Seastone chair, wielded Dawn, and had bronze armor inscribed with runes, did any other of his keepsakes make it down through history? Was the crown that Torin Stark surrendered to Aegon the crown of the same person? This is where I was asking for your expertise. Do you know of any other ancient artifacts that may fit into the narrative above? Okay, so there's a lot of different ways to approach this question, a lot of angles here, and I took a lot of notes as I was thinking about it. In our Royce episode, which we did a while ago, maybe about a year and a half, we talked about how the bronze armor the Royces have is probably not the original copy. It's, there's probably been several copies made since then, but they're always trying to bring back the mystique of that original copy, which makes me wonder if maybe the original version of that bronze armor really was magical, and but now it's been lost. The Royces would certainly want people to think that their armor is special, just like Euron wants people to be afraid of him before he gets there, just like Melisandre talks about how her appearance really affects how people treat her. It's this fear in advance. It's like, oh, how can I fight this guy? He's got armor that protects him from harm. That You know, it's a mental edge. So the Royces would continue to make this new set of armor and use that principle of superstition to get that edge in battle. Now, it may seem far-fetched to consider the idea that Dawn, the Seastone Chair, and this bronze armor of the Royces were all worn or used by one person, but... Flip that around. It's almost more likely, maybe not likely that it was just one, but it's very likely that there's very, very few sources for such amazing items. We don't have a lot of magical items in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's maybe, it seems like there's being more and more of them are coming onto the stage as we get more towards the end of the story, especially towards the climax, but still, there's not a lot of that stuff going on, despite this being a magic environment. So... That means if there's very few ways to make it, if there's only a few people in the world that have figured out the sorcery or the enchantments or whatever the process is, think of Valyrian steel. No one can do that anymore. They can reforge it, but no one knows how to make it. So the technology was lost. What so makes sense that there's limited sources for this type of technology. I call it technology, even though that sounds like modern stuff, but we're talking about magical technology. Or look at the wall or the five forts. I don't think those could be made using current knowledge in the series. And people in modern-day Westeros don't know how those things were done. I think it's a really interesting question. I can't really answer it, obviously. We don't know if these items were connected by one person or to one person, but it is a, it's a compelling idea. And another rabbit hole that this took us down, think about this. Despite the notion that some of these houses are like thousands of years old, there aren't exactly many examples of relics. There's no like dark, famous, wolf-headed something, like an old helmet that the first Stark King wore. We get this crown mentioned, but that's about it. On the other hand, the fact that they're so, so ancient, some of these houses, might actually explain exactly why they don't have some of these relics, because they wouldn't last. <laughs> like, think about the swords in the crypts of Winterfell. The iron swords laid across the laps to quell the vengeful spirits. Forget about the vengeful spirit part, although we do have someone else asking a question about that later. Just consider the fact that those swords rusted away. They're gone. That's what happens over a long period of time. Even metal and stone wear away and, and fall apart. So that might explain why some of these houses don't have ancient relics anymore. But ah, it's a really good question. That getting at how these things were made and the idea that they might be connected just because there's so few sources out there for making such things. But I'm not sure we can go much deeper than that. Great question, though. Okay, next one from Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. 
I've gotten really curious lately about the parallels of the others having a hatred of iron, according to old Nan, so you know it's true, lol. <laughs> Which you also get a hint of in the A Game of Thrones prologue, where Will was telling Waymar about the wildling camp and when they go back. The only thing that the others left was an iron axe. It seemed very deliberately mentioned. And of the stark custom of placing an iron longsword across the lap of all the lords of Winterfell slash kings in the north to keep their vengeful spirits in the crypts. There we go with that again. Why iron is the question. Why iron of all things? Well, I kind of have a headcanon about this one. It's not necessarily backed up with any straight evidence, but of course, what straight evidence do we have on the nature of the others anyway? We've hardly seen them on screen at all. So we're all really in the realm of guesswork and limited evidence here. But we know that fire is a big problem for them. And that obsidian is a huge problem for them. And obsidian is called frozen fire. And the way we hear about obsidian is it's forged in the fires of the earth. Forged is kind of a key word there. Maybe I'm taking it too literally. But my, my, the idea here I'm presenting is that if there's fire sort of metaphorically contained in this item, frozen fire, because of how it was made, the forging of it in the natural fires of the earth. Well, what about an unnatural fire making metal? Iron is forged. So it's like... The memory of heat within it is what makes it deadly to the others. I'm, like I said, I'm just guessing, but I think that there's something to that. Something has to explain it, right? Iron is a problem for the others, according to Old Nan. And we tend to agree with Old Nan on pretty much everything. So while this may not be the right guess, it's got to be something. The others are bothered by iron. Maybe they're bothered by foraged things. Anything man-made. Maybe if it's not from nature, they don't like it. There's a lot of things to think about there, and I think the concept of natural versus unnatural, just funny to think about the others being on the natural side of things because they're pretty unnatural, that might be where that line is for them. Next question from Galia, another patron supporter. If the White Walkers are created by the children of the forest, then who is the great other and why do we think that he, she is controlling them? Does it have anything to do with the obsidian in the heart of the Night King? Is the Great Other the Lion of Night? Okay, a bunch of related questions there. Now, George R. R. Martin himself has said that the idea of gods is meant to be pretty ambiguous. He's never really going to let us know whether they're real or not. And he says the same thing about a lot of these mythical figures, including the Night's King. So it gives the impression, at least to me, and I know a lot of other people in the fandom, that we're not meant to take the idea of a boss other or a great other too literally. It might, it's maybe something more that people believe in. Now, regarding the second part of the question, which is, is the great other the Lion of Night? Now, I really like that question. It may seem a little bit random to connect those two, but here's why I like it so much. In the same vein that we see all kinds of magical overlap in the series, like Resurrection's a good example. The others resurrect whites. The Red Priests resurrect people. Kyburn and pulls his thing off. There's necromancy all over the place. We also see this kind of similarities in the gods of the world. They're worshipped for similar reasons, or there's gods of war and gods of love and gods of harvest. That's a common thing in the real world, too. Their gods are generally associated, or frequently associated, with natural phenomena. And in the case of Westeros, Planetos, Teros, Earth, whatever you want to call it, natural the natural forces include magic. That's a real thing. So... Well, we've long held the theory that the reason that these magic, magical forces overlap is that different people are tapping into them and just giving it a different name. Melisandre taps into the, the powers of the Red God, of R'hllor, and has certain results. 
And other people are tapping into other types of magic and having similar results, but maybe it's the same source they're all tapping into. But for cultural reasons, through ancient traditions, they've called it different things. Just like two different people, a world apart, will both have a god of the sun, but they call it by a different name. But if they were to meet each other and talk about the sun god, they would probably consider it the same thing, even though they had a different name for it. So why not? The Lion of Night being a cultural name for the same concept as the Great Other. It's just this sort of ancient evil thing that, you know, guides things in the world, darkness in the world. It, maybe it brought the, you know, brought the long night on, things like that. The same thing happens with prophecies, right? The prince that was promised is a pretty similar prophecy to Azor Ahai, right? So this is something George loves to play with, this theme of overlap of cultural interpretations producing different results, but kind of coming from the same place, or at least the same idea or the same concept. We love that too. I really like that George puts that in because I think it's a really accurate thing for the way humans behave. And to have that reflected in his world just gives it more, uh, gives that, that more feel of authenticity. Next question from patron Lydia Bringerud. Do you have any predictions slash guesses as to what the heart of winter might be or what lies within? Well, Good question. I think this is the home of the others, perhaps their birthplace as well. But both home and birthplace need to be put in air quotes because it might be metaphorical. There, there wasn't some mama other that, you know, carried them around for nine months and gave birth. They're magical beings. They were brought into being by something, probably the children of the forest, they didn't evolve over time, right? They're not normal creatures that became what they are after a long period of, you know, existing in nature. So we have to consider that home and their birthplace are abstract, not literal concepts. So if that's the case, then the heart of winter may not be a real physical location either. It's maybe like an accessible place only to the Weirwood Network. After all, consider what Bran sees in his dream in the coma very early in the series. He sees dreamers impaled on ice spikes. If the heart of winter is a real physical place, are we supposed to believe that somewhere way north of the wall there's a spot where there's all these impaled dreamers sitting there hanging on ice spikes? I don't think so. This is a metaphysical, spiritual realm that we're talking about. So it's quite possible, maybe even likely, that the heart of winter itself is like a place within the spiritual realm where people like the dreamers, like Bran and Bloodraven and others can't go because the others, they've kind of conquered that area of the metaphysical realm. It's, these are hard concepts to put into words because there aren't words for them. But I think, I think you know what I mean. Now, if someone is, say, killed in that world, like a dreamer impaled on a spike, that can have a real-world impact. They're not going to just all of a sudden have a big hole open up in their body, but they might just slip into a coma and it'll be like brain dead or something like that. Okay, let's take a live question. We have a question from our good friend Iontrone. Can we build an ice wall like that with today's technology without the magical part, obviously? This is a funny question and a good question because George R. Martin himself has said that one of the things you do when you're writing fantasy is you take real world concepts and you blow them out of proportion and make them kind of unrealistically big. That's what he did with the length of time that some of these houses have existed. The way his genetics work is, you know, not very realistic, but it's 
realistic within his own world. It's fairly consistent with the rules he set out. It just doesn't work much like real world genetics. The wall. He himself has said that he made it too big. <laughs> he said, I should have made it shorter. 700 feet is too tall. It's insanely tall. And hey, you know, no big deal. I think it's fun that it's that big. <sighs> I do not think it's possible to make an ice wall like that with today's technology. I don't really know, though. I'm not an ice architect or any kind of architect at all. I'm pretty sure I've read some old articles out there in the world that say that it's not possible that some architects and engineers have weighed in saying, nah, this isn't, this isn't possible. But maybe uh, there's some other ones out there who disagree and say, yeah, it is there. We'll have to see about that. Maybe someday someone's going to try to build a big ice wall. People have done all kinds of homages to Game of Thrones out there in the real world. This would be one of the bigger ones, you know, kind of like uh, the Hobbit Town in uh, New Zealand. Of course, that's part because of the movie being filmed there. But they kept it all. So hopefully if someone ever does build this wall of ice, we keep it around. <laughs> Here we go. We have a question from Uptown GBV. That is from Twitter. Now, again, a reminder for future Q&As, we take questions from just about any of the places where we have a social media presence. You can send them to us on Facebook, Twitter, WesterosHistory at gmail.com. Straight email there. You can ask them on Patreon and if you uh, want to come knock on our door and say, hey, I have a question for you, you can do that too. But we're not going to tell you where we live, so good luck figuring that out. Okay, the question is, will Eamon Steele's song be named Lord of Horn Hill by series end? In parentheses, sorry, Dickon. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Dickon. Well, first, let's back up and remind everybody who we're talking about. Eamon Steele's song, a.k.a. Eamon Battleborn, is the name Gilly wants to give the child born of Mance Raider and Dalla, Val's sister. Now, wants to give because wildlings don't name their children until they're about two because it's bad luck to name a child before that. Harsh, because in their world, children die so very often. Now, Gilly is forced to swap out her own child with this one, Eamon Steelsong, by John because John fears Melisandre will burn the baby. Ha! How about that? John getting involved in a baby swap of his own. Now, of course, the reason he fears this is because, because it's Mance's child, it has king's blood. Now, how, you ask, how could this kid possibly be named Lord of Horn Hill if he's Mance Raider's child with a wildling princess? Well, don't forget what Sam's plan is here. He's going to lie and tell his father that young Eamon is his bastard child from Gilly, not Mance's. So that lie. If it's accepted, and I think it will be, that's my call, my prediction there, then Eamon will be a Tarly bastard. So in the Reach, he'll be Eamon Flowers, I suppose. He'll have a lot of nicknames. Even if he's never Lord of Horn Hill, he'll have that going for him. So if Randall dies, and Dickon does as well, well, we already know Sam can't inherit because he's taken the black, and maybe there's just no other Tarly cousins out there. Legal heir might be Eamon. He'd be recognized as having Tarly blood. And that would be, you know, maybe the best claim out there, or at least a claim as good as any others. So never mind that he doesn't actually have Tarly blood. The, what matters is the perception. If everyone believes he's a, a Tarly bastard, then that's good enough. However, the caveat there is a half-wildling Lord of Hornhill might not sit so well with the proud lords of the reach especially the marcher lords of this ancient tradition of fighting the dornish and being proud of their heritage and honor and all that they're kind of uh, prejudiced you know as to put it mildly so that might be one thing standing in the way of that happening but other than that yeah i, I think it's definitely possible 
Okay, next one, another one from Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. Possibly our question-asking MVP of this episode. <laughs> With the followers of R'hllor championing Daenerys, what do you think will end up happening, if anything, regarding the fact that most of the followers of R'hllor, at least the Red Priests, are all slaves? Especially when it's been said in the world of Ice and Fire that the Valyrians thought all the faiths and gods to be false and that they only thought the religions were useful as a way to placate the slaves. As a follow-up question, do you think Relorism was started by the Valyrians so that their slaves would start to worship fire and possibly become willing sacrifices? Possibly involved in the creation of Valyrian steel, which we have a notion from the world of Ice and Fire that it does involve human sacrifice. Okay, good question. I've considered a lot about the followers of R'hllor coming to Westeros. The thing that stands out to me the most is the fact that they're just a bunch of religious zealots coming to Westeros at a time when the native religious zealots are just coming into power, the High Sparrow and his people, right? That never goes well when two different religions full of zealots just come head-to-head, -head, crashing together. That is going to be ugly. It'll be fun, too, but it'll be ugly. The idea that they're slaves, though, that's not something I've thought about as much, so I'm glad I had time to think about this question a little bit in advance. The fact that they're slaves will definitely go work against them. There certainly will be something politically that will be negative for for her cause, for Daenerys's cause. First, she's got a lot of things that are politically negative for her. First of all, Westeros has never had a sitting queen, and there's a lot of prejudice there. The fact that, you know, she's got this reputation... For, for being a killer, and, you know, it's not true, a lot of it, a lot of it is, but the, the, the rumors about what's happened far overseas, of course, are well out of proportion from what's real, the, the truth. And if she's bringing Dothraki, and bringing red priests, and, Relor, you know, zealous Relorists, that's not going to look good for her being the, hey, I deserve the Iron Throne. It's really going to look quite bad. So, you know, she's still got the biggest, baddest army on her side, so the, these objections may be dealt with, you know, with violence. But the heart of the question is, how will that matter? The slaves, will that be a big problem for her? Well, Daenerys doesn't want to have a bunch of slaves following her. I'm gonna, that's going to be a problem for her, not just for Westeros, because she's not happy with a bunch of slaves following her. She was going to want to free them, just like she freed the Unsullied and said, hey, if y'all want to sign up and be my army, cool. I'm going to pay you, though. You're not slaves. And I think that's how she's going to want to treat these Valoris, but... Are they going to want to do that? Do they want to be free? Do they want to not be a slave to their god who they believe they should be a slave to? It's kind of part of their culture. They, they, he's this high, you know, he's the god. So being a slave to a god isn't the same as being a slave to another human in their mindset. So I, it's really difficult to see how this could play out because we're talking about how an entire culture reacts to a whole other culture clashing heads with it but i do think that the the most basic result will be blood there will be a lot of blood between the two groups of followers and i don't think daenerys is going to be able to control it all that's another thing that's important is they're gonna they're even though they see her because the, the actual high priest of relore is blatantly just coming out and saying daenerys is azor ai There's, he's not hinting at it he says straight up so they're gonna obey her because she's the prophet according to him. But if it comes down to her going against the tenets of their religion, well, that's going to cause a little existential confusion for some people. And, well, how that goes, we'll just have to wait and see. Next question from Fraser. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. Hi there. 
Nice long away question. As we know, history often repeats itself, and I'm curious to know whether you believe the defiance of Duskendale could either be paralleled in future books. Perhaps not in terms of someone attempting to rescue Danny or another Targaryen or a potential Mad Queen, but an event that pushes one of our characters over the edge. This is a great question for multiple reasons. First of all, you demonstrate a knowledge of how these, these historical topics often work. They're not just straight history repeats itself word for word. The exact same thing happens. It's usually conceptually similar. The idea or the struggle of the characters is similar, even if the impetus is different. The other thing I want to applaud with this question is how we have gone on at length uncountable times about how the history of A Song of Ice and Fire predicts its future. So what this question is basically saying is, hey, let's look at a bunch of other important historical events that maybe haven't been explored for possible parallels and say, hey, are there parallels here? Are there parallels here? And Duskendale, that's a pretty famous event from recent history that I don't know of any popular ideas for how this might replay itself. If there's a replay or a similar replay of this, yeah. Well, it is tricky, though, because the hero of that story, The Defiance of Duskendale, is Barristan Salmi, and he's still alive. <laughs> and I do think there's something to be said for ancient history versus recent history. You know, I don't think we're going to see all the same parallels from recent history, but we're certainly going to see some of them. Some of the ancient myths are just ancient myths. But some of them, we're going to see again. I think we're going to see another Long Night, for example. That's a history bit that is almost certainly going to replay itself. But, let's see. Now, Danny, here's the thing about Daenerys. is She's sort of primed, despite what I just said about the difficulties she's going to have managing her own people and how her people interact with existing Westerosi, which I think is going to be a huge problem for her. Militarily speaking, it really looks like no one could stand up to her. If you look at it in certain ways, maybe if you dig or think about certain angles or consider that she's lacking in talented sub-commanders, she's got a few good ones, but maybe not enough of them. It seems to think like she might just roll Westeros. She just might just kick everyone's butt because her army is just too strong. She's got the Unsullied. She's got dragons. Like, who can stand up to that? And the Dothraki. It's going to be tough for anyone to face that, especially considering they're already fighting each other right now and they're weakened and winter is coming on top of all that. So what I mean by all that is Danny. it's not going to be interesting if she just wins and wins and wins and wins. She's got to have setbacks. Things have to go wrong. Things have to... She has to have some struggles. Well, maybe we're thinking about this wrong. Maybe this is already about to happen. Consider where she is at the end of Dance. She's confronted by the Dothraki. Not just any Dothraki, Dothraki that she has a specific uh, desire to have vengeance over, Mago and Kaljoko. And they don't like her either, but they're not going to kill her. Remember, that's not how the Dothraki work when their religion is in play. Their religion compels them to take her to Vase Dothrak and make her live her days out amongst the Dosh Kaleen. They may personally want to kill her <laughs> because they hate her, but this is what matters most. They can't go against their religion like that. So, she's going to be captured. She's I don't know if this is going to push her over the edge and make her crazy, but maybe Drogon is Barristan in this case. Drogon is going to help her get out of her situation here. She's This is her cap. She is going to be a captive of the Dothraki, it seems like. And it seems pretty likely that she'll get out of that captivity. And I don't think Barristan Salmi is going to be the one to free her. I don't think that we're going to see... Something like what happened in the show. I won't say what happened in the show for people who are avoiding those spoilers, but I, I don't think it'll be like that. I'll just go say that much, which is hardly a spoiler at all. Everybody knows the books and show differ quite a bit. So, 
maybe the near extinction of House Darklin, which came as a result of Ares's vengeance against being seized and held captive. Maybe the parallel here, it'd be a loose parallel, but it's a parallel, is that if Danny wipes out all the calls to seize control, to be the stallion who mounts the world, that might be what she has to do to wipe out the other leaders because they're not going to stand for her taking their hordes away from them. They're going to fight. That's what Dothraki do, right? They don't kneel meekly like that. So she's going to prove it. And, you know, the Dothraki respond to strength. So she may have to just kill off a bunch of calls. And if she does that, that would be a little bit like wiping out the Darklands in a loose sense. So another way to look at this, though, what if Barristan betrays Danny? That's a theory that's made the rounds ever since Dance with Dragons was well analyzed by the fandom because we know that Danny's going to have some more betrayals coming. And we know that Aegon VI, when Barristan finds out about him, is going to cause him some consternation, at the very least. It could mean he's like, look, I'm a noble knight. I follow the law. And as much as I've been serving Daenerys, as much as I've come to... She, he has feelings for her, not like romantically, but he, you know, he has feelings for her as a person, as a queen, as a rightful ruler. He thinks she's a good person, but he takes the law so seriously and he he's not going to be able to deny the line of succession says Aegon VI is king, not Daenerys. So that's going to be a real problem for him, a real conundrum. And maybe he rescues Aegon VI from some sort of predicament. Well, that would be pretty ironic, wouldn't it? Barristan leaving a real Targaryen to rescue a Blackfire king that doesn't know he's a Blackfire. When Barristan himself is the one that ended the male line of the Blackfires by killing Maylie's Blackfire on the Stepstones. So I, I think that might be a little far-fetched, but the idea is just so funny. The, the, the irony would be so thick that I almost hope it happens. Okay, let's take another live question. Another question from Jiri Dvorak. Why do I like Victarion so much? Me personally. What is so good about the character? Okay, well, I guess I have not explained myself well for Victarion. I don't think he's a good character. I enjoy reading his chapters, not because I think he's a good person. He's a horrible person. Although, compared to some of the other Ironborn, he's really not so bad, but... That's not saying much either, because there's so many horrible Ironborn. I mean, he's he's nowhere near as bad as Euron, but he might not be worse than Aaron. <laughs> uh, he's certainly worry, way worse than Asha, who is pretty good. But it's not that I like him. It's Well, I do like him. I like the way the character is written. I don't think he's a good person. I don't think, hey, I'd like to hang out with him. I just think it's difficult to do what George has done here. George is intelligent. No, I don't think that needs any selling. And so George is really good at writing other intelligent characters because he gets that. When he writes Tyrion, one of the reasons Tyrion is written so well is George identifies really well with Tyrion. And Tyrion is intelligent. So his, his chapters are a joy because he figures things out. He's cunning. And you like get to see his thought process and say, ah, look at this intelligence. Look at this go. Look at him think. Look how smart he is. And that's fun. Victorian is dumb as rocks. But George does a good job of that. And that's something I respect when an author can write a character that's not like them at all. George is not, George has nothing in common with Victorian. He's, Victorian is physically gifted and stupid and violent. George is like a pacifist who is happy and fun, doesn't take life too seriously, isn't superstitious. Victorian is super, very, very superstitious. He's more of a jock type where George R. R. Martin's more of a nerd type, a geek type. So, I, so I really respect that George can write a character that's so different than him and do a good job of it. 
That's why I like Victorian. It's more of a meta reason. more Not so much that I really like Victorian. I, I want to be like him. <laughs> Although I really do like his cool armor. <laughs> and I like reading about him fighting because, eh, I like reading fights. I wouldn't want to read a whole book of that, but... You know, Victorian doesn't get exact doesn't exactly get a lot of chapters, and I don't think he's going to get very many more. <laughs> Maybe got two or three more total in the series. That's going to be my guess. I'll say three. I'm going to say Victorian has three more chapters total in the whole series before he's dead. Okay, next one. Back to a pre-question here from Irish Sand. Irish Sand, a great Irish name like myself. My name isn't Irish, but I am mostly Irish. Who are the Green Men really, and will they have a part to play in the final battle? Okay. Another good question that touches on a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire meta. Whenever I entertain an idea related to A Song of Ice and Fire, as opposed to the TV show, because the TV show is kind of different in the way its meta works, I consider the most crackpot possibilities, the most that I'm willing to entertain, I don't go as far as most as some people will on crackpot. But I have nothing against crackpot. I just think that, you know, some people go too quickly go to crackpot. I also try to come up with the most mundane answer, the simplest answer, without trying to have any bias towards either possibility. So I look at the most crackpot and the most mundane, try to find the truth between. Sometimes the truth is the crackpot. Sometimes the truth is very mundane. Sometimes we don't know. Like this. Green men are a perfect place to apply this line of thinking, and it applies to the previous the previous question as well, because it's an, a historical question. It's like, hey, how, the green men have been mentioned in myth, are they going to matter in A Song of Ice and Fire? I think they will. So, again, I mentioned that magic is real in A Song of Ice and Fire. So in a world where magic is, well, it's not common. Remember, magic isn't common, but it's understood by all to be real. Even the maesters who downplay it don't deny that it did exist, or that dragons exist, things like that. They're more like, their attitude is, it's gone now. It used to be real, but we know that it's come back, big time. Characters like Melisandre and Euron use real magic, but they also use tricks to make their real magic seem more powerful than it is. They want to make a level 5 sorcerer, to borrow a, you know, a role-playing game analogy. They want to make themselves look like level 10 sorcerers when they're really level 5. And they do that, and it works because people are conditioned to believe that magic is real, and they can't tell the difference. They're not educated enough. They don't know how magic works. It's like, wow, how is that possible? It must be magic. So these concepts apply to the green men. These agreement, we know so little about them. What we know could be shrouded in myth and blown away out of proportion. Or it could be completely 100%, well, maybe not 100%, but almost 100% accurate. Meaning they could be very magical in nature. They could be, they could have blood of the children of the forest. They could be children of the forest. They could be, like, we, we hear that the, the warriors of the children of the forest are called the 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 leaf dancers or the whatever they're called the, the I forget the name the, the the wood dancers or whatever their name is I'm mixing up my Warhammer 40k uh, names in here but they're like a class of children of the forest the fighters maybe the green men or some sort of like high priest or something or maybe it's just dudes wearing costumes that make themselves look like they're magical but they really aren't at all <laughs> Or it could be, like Melisandre and Euron, somewhere in between. They definitely have some magic in them, but they make it look like a lot more by putting, like, staghorn helmets on and dressing in leaves and greenness to make themselves look like they're a part of nature. So that spreads the myth about them, makes people fear them. And that means they keep away from their little islands so that no one messes with whatever it is they're doing there. 
But the problem is we just don't have enough. We just don't know enough. We don't have eyewitness accounts, not even from the POVs. They hardly anyone has anything to say about them. We just have these very little small tidbits. But man, the place is in the center of the continent. It's like the almost a literal middle. <laughs> and the Riverlands is such a center of action. And Harrenhal is important. And it could be a lot of the stories about Harrenhal could be a scene of history repeating itself. So the God's Eye is probably going to be important. And if the God's Eye is important, then how could we not have the Green Men at least matter a little? I don't know how we're going to see them, though. Bran is pretty much the only guess I have. Bran is the safe guess for anything that we expect to see, but don't know how we're going to see it. Like, oh, he can see it through the weirwood net. That's possible. One last bit on this. A theory I have have had some love for for quite a while is that the idea that the Kranigmen have some blood of the children of the forest. There's like a little bit of interbreeding going on there. And that's why the children and the Kranigmen have some loose similarities in their, you know, physical genetics, such as their, you know, they're closest to nature, the small stature, you know, things of that sort. It's it's possible that the green men are a hybrid, you know, human children hybrid kind of thing. And well, it would be a bit weird if that same small group of people just lived on this island for literal thousands and thousands of years and have just kept interbreeding. So, really, we need more information on the green men. But it is a tantali- it's tantalizing what we have, but I really hesitate to, to try to make definitive guesses because it's just... The info just isn't there. All right. How about this question from Curveball with a K? When and where will the Veil slash Baelish... Alliance bring their forces. Stannis, Aegon VI, Danny, Cersei. Like in the show, their presence can turn the tide as they're well-fed and intact. Good point. Again, that's not a show spoiler. It's the same case. We've got the Vale Knights sitting on the books just waiting to get into the action. Do they ride the sidelines like Tywin during Robert's Rebellion until there's a clear victor kind of joining the winning side? Or maybe are we going to see Sansa's arc seemingly headed to this marriage in the Vale? Okay, well, first things first, Littlefinger obviously isn't telling Sansa everything, but I don't think he's lying about how the Vale is going to react when they find out who she really is. He's banking on the chivalrous and, very importantly, combat-hungry Knights of the Vale, glory-hungry. Remember, this is the birthplace of chivalry, the Andal Knights, their ancient nobility. This is where they got it all started. They're very snooty about this sort of thing. So he's banking on them saying... This noble lady, stripped of her inheritance, is now married to one of us. That's a really important aspect. Sansa marrying a Veilman. That means she's, maybe she's not one of them, but her children will be. And that's huge. So this, you have this chivalric ideal of romantic justice for the lovely noble girl. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it definitely helps that she's pretty. But just the fact that she's this noble girl that's had an injustice done to her, that's probably enough. And But marrying the Lord of the Vale, that really seals the deal because their children are going to be Northern and Valemen. And the Vale has the primacy in that partnership. So, of course, the, the Vale's going to like that part of it. They're like, yeah, we've got the male half of this arrangement. So, to them, that means, you know, they got the patriarch side of it. So, that means the children are going to be Aaron's. So, that means the Vale is kind of taking over the North in a sense. So, of course, the Knights of the Vale are... Pretty happy with that arrangement. They're like, yeah, the North is our, they're going to be our subjects. A lot to like for them. The Santa bit, the conquest bit, the getting into the action bit, lots of things. That said, though, 
Predicting what Littlefinger is going to do is difficult because Var like Varys and Illyrio, they don't just have a set plan that if this doesn't work, this won't work. If this doesn't work, this won't work. They have contingencies and ways to adapt. They'll roll with the punches as things come. I mean, if Varys and Illyrio lose, if Aegon the Sixth dies, well, they're kind of screwed there. But Littlefinger, you know, he can still do, even if Sansa dies, there's still things he can do. So, we haven't heard him mention Aegon Sixth or Daenerys yet. But given his spy network, you gotta think he's probably aware of them, at least some way, in some form or fashion. So, I think what we can say with confidence is that Littlefinger is not gonna join the losing side. <laughs> he's not gonna marry himself to a sinking ship. He will find a way to turn the circumstances to his advantage, or at least he will try to. Things are going to get more chaotic than they are now with all these different invaders, all these different claimants, all these all these different magical items, the, perhaps the fall of the wall, winter coming, regardless of what happens at the wall. Things are going to get more chaotic, and we know that Littlefinger thrives on chaos. Nothing is more chaotic than war, and it's a lot worse than just simple war. Look how profitable the War of Five Kings was for him. He went from Master of Coin to Lord Paramount of two of the Seven Kingdoms, and now he's aiming to get the North in there as well, kind of controlling a third one. Yeah, Littlefinger is still in the game. I think the one thing that might break him is the is Winter and the White Walkers specifically, but it's going to be difficult to get rid of him. I think uh, we'll still be seeing a, a quiet... Uh, he'll be there until the last minute. <laughs> That'll mean like the end of the books. But until it's just humanity versus the others, if that's how it goes, Littlefinger will be out there doing his thing. I think his death might be satisfying when it comes eventually, but I really don't know how it's going to come. Okay, moving on. We have a question from Matt Nolet. With the Boltons, D Domeric seemed to be a pretty decent person. He doesn't seem to be as inherently evil, like Roos or Ramsay. Would Roos have done what he did with undermining the Northern effort and the Red Wedding if Domeric was his heir instead? Okay, so, good question. The Boltons have a long history of, shall we say, ill repute. But nothing is that simple, not in George's world. Domeric can't be the first in thousands of years, you know, decent Bolton. But... Clearly, none of these non-evil Boltons rehabilitated the image of Boltons in general. I mean, they still have the dread for it. You know, their castle is still terrifying. Their reputation is still what it is. And if we're being fair, we don't actually know that Domeric was a decent guy. He may have just seemed decent compared to Roos or Ramsay, or because Roos said good things about him. Pretty much everything we know about Roos, uh, about Domeric comes from Roos with a little bit from, what's her name, uh, Lady Dustin. So, and so in other words, Roos could be exaggerating or lying. It was his own son. You know, he might have just, he might be, you know, pumping him up just a little bit. Or perhaps we're just reading too much into this. Roos says, okay, here's what Roos says. He's, he's quiet but accomplished. An incredible writer. He played the harp and read histories. Okay, wait a second. Those aren't actually personality traits, except for maybe being quiet. And quiet doesn't mean good or bad. That's kind of a neutral trait. Quiet people aren't good or evil, they're just quiet. So point being, sociopaths, psychopaths, bad dudes, cruel dudes can be interested in music and history and writing. <laughs> they can be chivalrous. People can be chivalrous and downright cruel. So I don't even know if we should be assuming that Domeric was all that great of a guy. So, but if he was, 
I am very interested in this because there's a bit of a pattern with Roos's angle throughout all this. He sent his heir to Squire in the South. Then when he remarried, it was to a Southerner, Roos himself. Roos may have been entertaining his own brand of Southron ambitions long before the War of Five Kings, possibly because he saw what Lord Rickard was doing. He saw these other alliances forming and, and saw which way the winds were blowing, so to speak, politically. Roos is nothing if not politically savvy. That's how he you know, knew to join up with Walder Frey because he saw what things were going. He knew to make his deal with Tywin on the side. So it looks like Roos has been making moves since long before the books even started. And the way he handled his son's upbringing is a clue to that. Okay, question from Seth Osborne. Where are the Reeds at? What role will they have to play, and how do they fare after the Ironborn and Bolton takeovers? Okay, good question. I don't think the Reeds have gone anywhere. The The thing is that their home turf is a swamp. No one wants to go in there. No one wants to invade their swamp. Anyone who's ever tried has failed, and, you know, it's of limited value anyway. You want to fight... The reason anyone would go after them, like Victorian says, I will deal with the bog devils later, is because they attacked him. And, you know, as a, that's the kind of guy he is. If someone fight, attacks me, you got to answer that with, you know, coming back after them. But really, they don't have wealth. You know, they, they're just a nuisance. They're, they're, they don't have territory worth holding. So I don't think that anyone's going to try to come for them. But they could come for others. Especially houses like the twins who live nearby them have expressed that they are dangerous, that they are worrisome, that they are problematic, that they use poison, that they melt away into the bog without, you know, you being able to track them. And that's pretty accurate. So I think we could see maybe some, especially if we see any other armies heading north, we could see them harassing those, especially if they're not loyal, you know, if they're not allied to the north. We could see them maybe getting involved with the Brotherhood. If the Brotherhood is continuing to go after Freys, the, the breeds would be like, hey, we want in on that game. We'll help you kill some Freys. Um, and of course, they would be useful. You got to think the way the Brotherhood operates, having some, you know, sneaky mud men around with their uh, poisonous arrows and stuff, that would be a welcome addition to their ranks, I would think. I don't know that they're going to have much to do with the Boltons, though. The Boltons are just so far away, and I don't think they're going to send some sort of standing army up to the north to help Stannis or anything like that. They just don't have that sort of thing. So I think their, their revenge is mostly going to be aimed at the Freys, and certainly the Ironborn are also kind of out of play. I don't know that they're going to have much opportunity to come to grips with the Ironborn. So I think they'll have to be satisfied with dealing with their more traditional enemy, the phrase of the twins. All right. Let's see. We've got one from Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell. What do you think John's name will end up being? In Game of Thrones, we find out that John would pretend to be Aemon the Dragon Knight, and he was very impressed with Daron the Young Dragon. Then, when John almost leaves the wall, he says to himself, I'm no Aemon Targaryen, but I think he might be. I heard there was some article that claimed John's name is Jaehaerys, but there's no actual quote attributed to anyone confirming that. Yeah, first of all, ignore any online claims of what the show revealed about John's name. The show didn't reveal anything. People were trying to read... Leona's lips and all that? No. None of that. We don't know. I definitely figure the guess Aemon, though, because of pretty much these, the same reason. Because of the, I'm no Aemon Targaryen. That's just so blatant and funny, and George does like to operate like that. It's the same as the, are you sure it wasn't a child snow knight? Which, the child snow knight was a reference to the others being made by the children, etc., etc. George loves to do that sort of thing. 
So my guess is Eamon. I do think Jaharis is a fine guess because you want... Rhaegar is trying to... You know, the three heads of the dragon. They're trying to restore the, uh, the notion or fulfill this prophecy uh, that was started long ago. The dragon has to have three heads. Aemon is the most noble of Targaryen names. All the other names have been sullied. There's been bad Aegons. There's been bad Darons. Those are the three most... And there's been... There really hasn't been a bad Jaehaerys, but there's been only a couple Jaehaerys. Jaehaerai. <laughs> so, Aemon. There's just a lot of great Aemons. And I think that... You know, symbolically, John following in that tradition. Plus, you got the pairs of Aegon and Aemon. The, tw- the, the, the pairing off of those names comes really commonly. And Rhaegar had an Aegon already. So an Aemon would be next. So that is my guess as well. I think Aemon is my pick. And I hope we find out soon. Okay, maybe one or two more non-Winds of Winter questions before we move on to some ones that have some spoilers in them. Lord Commander Daenerys Flint, why did the Ghost of High Heart have such a strong negative reaction to Arya? Okay, well, I think it's that she sees the future. And Arya's future is filled with blood. And not just filled with blood, but filled with dark emotions. Dark hatred, need for vengeance, being isolated, having no family, no friends, not knowing what's up with, uh, or knowing less than she does about her own family, knowing her, seeing what she's seen with her mother's death, which she saw through Nymeria's eyes. And that's the, I think that's it. I, I don't think there's any sort of deep conspiratorial reason. I just think that Arya's journey, Arya's arc, is going to be dark. It's, it's already dark. It's going to continue to be dark. It might get darker. And when you're, let's, let's put yourself in the shoes <laughs> of moccasins, bare feet, of the Ghost of High Heart. Imagine that you can see the future and these things come to you as a vision in your head. You see it and it's like it's real. And let's see you look in the flames and you see what she saw. She, for an example, she saw a maid at a wedding with purple serpents in her hair. That's Sansa, the purple wedding. These things look really intense to her. So, but a, a serpent with pur- purple, you know, in a hair, in hair is not that bad as far as these things go. But... Whatever she sees when she looks at Arya is that frightening to her. And that really says a lot because she's old and she's been having visions her whole life. Yet, she, So you've got to figure she's had some pretty terrible visions before. She's seen some awful dark things before. Yet Arya is, just sets her off. So it's not necessarily the why, but the fact that it's that strong. That her reaction is that strong is so telling. And... Well, it makes me feel kind of bad for Arya. All right. Next question from L. David Thomas. Currently, I'm on Religion and Magic number four. That's our episode, The Night's King. And you mentioned how the wall may have been made by the Others. Because why would you build an ice wall to keep ice creatures out? What if it is true? What if the Others built the wall to keep the followers of the Red God out, or rather, contained? We've been conditioned to view the Others as antagonists, but George R. R. Martin isn't into the whole black-white slash good-evil thing. First of all, yes, we. this theory has been put out in other places. I've, I heard recently that Alt-Shift-X also has con- entertained this theory. And a shout-out to Alt-Shift-X. Great, uh, great YouTuber and really good at making things, breaking down complicated things and making them simple. That's uh, his game. Simple explanations. Does a really good job of it. So, uh, responding to the question directly, I definitely think the idea is worth entertaining, but I lean towards no. I do lean towards... It's just, hey, we're in... A, how are they going to make a big firewall? <laughs> That's even less realistic. 
So I think it's the magic within the ice wall that keeps the others out, not the fact that it's actually ice. And another clue to this is the Night Fort. The Night Fort has that passage that only a brother of the Night's Watch can use. That seems to hint that it was made by them, that, or at least someone who had the brothers of the Night's Watch in mind when it was made. To be fair, that could have been an addition. They could have added the Black Gate to the wall well after it was made. It would, it would be like, hey, the others built this wall to keep humanity out. Well, we're going to make a little tunnel through their creation so we can get through. And then make some more tunnels, like the one at Castle Black, which is just a regular tunnel. I don't know. Uh, the Red God, I don't think, has anything to do with this. There's not an, enough evidence to suggest that the followers of the Red God have been in no, any great numbers in Westeros before. Or that they've had a great presence there before in the past. Certainly not 8,000 years ago. So I, I don't think that's the case. But I do think the, uh, the, conce- the con- concept of, the, of the who made the wall is worth considering. And it's always worth looking at the complete opposite end of things. As for the idea that George isn't into the whole black-white good-evil thing, that's true. But we can't take that idea too far. There are some characters that are pretty much just straight evil in the series. For example, Ramsay. I mean, there's reasons. Ramsay has some reasons why he's horrible. Joffrey has some reasons why he's horrible. Even Gregor has migraine headaches that are so intense that it it kind of fuels his cruel violence. But come on. The dude's about as evil as it comes. There's not a whole lot of... There's no good in Gregor, right? There are some evil characters. George doesn't overuse these tropes. He does use them a little bit. So... I'm Count me among those who don't think there's any ambiguity with the others. There's some ambiguity as to why they were created. But that's going to be related to the children and what they were thinking at the time. The others themselves, I don't think there's any gray in them, personally. But I could be wrong, and I'm eager to find out. Callum Evans, what's your favorite guilty pleasure tinfoil theory? Love the show, by the way. And Anthony Ferrugia, favorite crackpot theory. Okay, so two people asking similar questions well you know it kind of really depends on what you call crackpot so this is one i maybe have to think about more i don't want to spend too much time sitting here thinking while y'all are watching us live so i think that a theory that you see okay i don't think that the Tyrion targaryen theory is tinfoil anymore but when it first came up it was tinfoil because it there wasn't enough evidence to support it a lot of the evidence that's come to support it and again i'm still not sold on it you know, don't go crazy on me here. I think it's possible. Um, and I don't know that it's fav- my favorite, but I will, I'm going to go ahead and bring it up here because I was an early backer of it you know, back in, you know, whatever, 2004, 2005. And um, so for my own, like, kind of wanting to be right so far in advance, ego, <laughs> I, would, I like that from that angle. Another one, though, I, one thing I'll say, I'll take an opportunity here to say the type of theory I don't like is the, is this character, this character thing. I almost wish George hadn't introduced the concept of glamours because it just gave birth to a whole genre of theory crafting that I don't have a lot of love for, to be honest. I don't like the, you know, is this character secretly this character? I, I think I'm just not down for that. I think it's going to be, there are, obviously it's happened. Mance Raider was a rattle shirt, <laughs> so it's definitely possible but I just don't see George overusing that. And some people could fire back at me. Well, then how can you think Targaryen's a Targaryen? If he's going to... Don't you think that's overusing the secret Targaryen thing? Maybe. Maybe it is. I don't know that two secret Targaryens is that many. or Because especially since I don't think Fagon is a Targaryen himself. So that would really only be a couple of them. And it makes sense that lots of Targaryens 
kind of princes and princesses going out. They're gonna some of them are gonna sleep around. There should be Targaryen blood out there. Um. So what about you, Shay? Do you have any uh, favorite crackpot theory off the top of your head? No. Not really. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I'm having trouble with that. I'm not a. I don't have a favorite crackpot theory. Besides Tyrion Targaryen, maybe I, a lot of my favorite. You know what? I do have a couple, but most of them are historical ones. Like some of the ones we brought up, Great Empire of the Dawn is our episode. There is chock full of tinfoil theories that I think are not actually so tinfoil. So Naga's bones. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Naga's bones. Okay, so just to be clear on that, that one is the row of of ribs. They look like ribs on Old Wick, where they have the king's moot is specifically mentioned to be, it's almost like mentioned as a metaphor that they're a lot, sort of like trees. Well, maybe they are weirwood trees that have turned to stone. Good one. All right. Let's move on. Okay, so I think we'll go, we'll move on to TWOW only questions now. And we'll be moving on here. But first, a few announcements in our, this is the midway through the episode. We're a little past the one hour point. We might go a little over two hours today just for fun couple of bits of news. I hadn't mentioned Con of Thrones this episode. Definitely wanted to do that. We have only two weeks as of this recording. Well, in fact, in two weeks, we'll have already had one day of Con of Thrones in the books. If you are coming to Con of Thrones, well, you probably know what we look like. If you don't, check out one of our videos. Then you will. Come say hi to us. We're very approachable, very friendly. We'll shake your hand, say hi, sign things or uh, whatever you need. Take pictures. And we'll be doing a lot of panels. Both Ash, Sean, and myself will be on quite a few panels. You can see which ones by checking the schedule. And we're really looking forward to this. It's going to be a great time. I think the people over there, Zach and Sue the Fury and everybody who watches The Wall, is looks like they're putting together something pretty special. And it's just the beginning because this is going to be a thing that happens every year. If you can't make it this year, well, we'll be telling y'all how well it went after the fact. Try to encourage y'all to come to the next one. Okay, also want to give uh, some shout-outs to these other artists here. We've got um, Michael Klarfeld's Line of Night on there and his great other. Great job by these artists. We put these some of this art in the Euron episode. It was so good that we wanted to bring it up again here in our live episode. So thanks again to those very talented artists who deserve lots of acclaim. Okay, let us continue with the questions. T-Well questions from... The Iron Lady, Lazara Joe, who we met at Ice and Fire Con. Very nice to meet you. Representing the Summer Islanders in costume, which is not something we've seen a lot of, so that was really cool. When will the High Towers and Danes appear? And ultimately, what is their purpose in the wars to come? I think they are very important. We agree. They are very important, and I think we are... I'm going to go really far and say 99.9% certain that we are on the cusp of major... Hightower and Dane action both. We have Sam, Gilly, Euron, and apparently Jake and Hagar, Jock and Hagar, associated with or in Old Town. As the lords of this ancient city that is becoming a focal point of the narrative for a lot of characters, the Hightowers are clearly going to be involved because they're the lords of this city. They're going to be in charge of its defense, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of current Hightowers. There's a big family right now. And But with that said, I'd say death is coming for... With confidence, I'm going to say most of them. Yikes. Because we do not have a good feeling about what's going to happen at Old Town. The Danes, though, are even more certain to be involved. Dawn is like one of the mothers of all Chekhov's guns, or Martin's guns in this one. It's just a really important object, widget, <laughs> that's got to matter at some point. 
And the Tower of Joy and Shara Dane are central mysteries that have been around since the beginning. And really, I can't see Darkstar being unimportant. And, you know, we go into some detail on this in our Dane episodes, but here's the thing. He's not just there to cut Marcella's ear off and be done and then become meaningless. If that were the case, why make him a Dane? Make him anything. Just make him some random guy. But George specifically created a new Dane character that didn't exist in the prior books and a new cadet branch to get this character on screen. Because you couldn't just bring up a Dane of Starfall because we've already got the heir being 12 years old. And that is very telling. The way Darkstar was added in general, there's a lot of things to consider here from, from the meta perspective. George created Darkstar because he scrapped the five-year gap. I firmly believe this. I, his original plan, I believe, was Edric to wield Dawn, but by losing the five-year gap, he lost the ability to do that with Edric because Edric is too young. Edric is 12. If he's five years later, he's 17. That's fine. 17-year-old Sword of the Morning? Maybe a little young, but that but it works. 12-year-old Sword of the Morning, though? Eh. I, I think that's a stretch. I just don't see that happening. In addition, the World of Ice and Fire introduces a new concept to us. World of Ice and Fire mentions Vorian Dane, Sword of the Evening. Really hard not to compare him to Darkstar, who says, I am of the night, right? Sword of the Evening. Like, how do you not make that connection? I think it's too obvious. I think George did that on purpose. It's not one of those things that's too obvious to be true. It's too obvious to not be true. <laughs> so I think Darkstar's purpose is similar to what Edric's purpose might have been, which is to get Dawn into the game, on stage, so to speak. He's going to ally with the Sand Snakes, I think, and others probably to kill Doran Martell. Damn, right? That's kind of sad, but I do think that's going to happen. After that, it kind of gets tricky, though, because then the Shifting Alliances picture gets tricky. Do they ally with Egg on the Sixth faction? Maybe. I can see why. There's a lot of good reasons to see why, and the biggest is that they're supposedly, they're going to believe, rather, that Aegon the Sixth is the son of Elia. So that's literally, he's literally got Martell blood. So it makes a lot of sense to support that one over Daenerys. So she's just a sister of Rhaegar, not the son of Rhaegar. So Aegon the Sixth seems to have the edge in terms of winning the Martells over, especially if you consider that news may come. It's not accurate news, but we know how these things work, that Quentin was killed by Daenerys. People are going to think that. We know it's not true. She wasn't even there. But we know people are going to think that because he was burned by Chris by a dragon. And that's how rumor works, right? So it's going to be hard for them to want to team up with her because of that. And consider that Arianne, how does she get into all this? She is currently headed off to chat with Aegon the Sixth himself, maybe to, you know, seduce him. And, you know, who knows how that'll go. That could completely work. But what happens if prospective ally Sand Snakes and Darkstar are like, hey, we want to join up with Egg on the Six. And Arion's like, you don't take them as allies. They killed my father. You know, if, if she's already like married to Egg on the Six or something like that, if she's his wife, would she would he take these allies? Maybe he would have to because they're just too important. He he would couldn't risk them going to fight for Danny. And look at the political symbology. Look at history. Sword of the Evening was sent to the wall in golden fetters by Nymeria. Nymeria could be Daenerys in this case, if we're looking at a parallel. Leading a huge foreign population to Westeros. Kind of like what Nymeria did, right? 10,000 ships. I don't know if it'll be that many, but it'll be a lot. So, yeah, there's a lot of entangling alliances here. And I think that the way things get out and how they hear about it. Like, like I said, Quentin, the news of Quentin 
if it comes that Daenerys did it, then that's really poisoning the well for her in terms of allying with the Dornish. But if the story gets straightened out, if she slays that lie, then maybe that'll help a lot. Now, another thing that I think is really important is Aegon VI is really going to try to make himself look like Rhaegar's son. He's really going to prove that. He wants to remind the realm that that's who he is because Rhaegar was widely liked and it was considered to be noble. You know, us readers, maybe we have our problems with Rhaegar and the way he behaved, but this is not our opinion. This is the opinion of the realm that matters here in terms of how they're going to view Aegon VI. So if Aegon VI has Darkstar wielding Dawn, right, what does that look like? That looks like the son of Rhaegar and another Dane, Rhaegar's best friend, was Arthur Dane. It's going to totally remind people of that famous friendship. That's a really powerful, symbolic political statement. But again, remember that wrinkle with Arianne and being Dor- Doran being killed, if that's how it goes. So, really tricky pr- to predict all this. Edric Storm himself, or Edric Storm, <laughs> Edric Dane is harder to predict. Because I, I think if if my theory that the five-year gap is the reason that he's not going to be the Dawn wielder anymore, maybe is he just just not important anymore? Is he just pushed off to the side and we're not going to talk about him? Or is he going to be killed by Darkstar? Or, yeah, I don't know. I don't think Darkstar is going to live out the series. But fear not, there's other Danes, like Illyria Dane, who there's some mystery around her, and there might be some cousins out there. So I'm not suggesting the Danes will go extinct. But one last thing about George and some uh, a, a meta consideration for this, which is that George has said he has the house words for the Danes that he hasn't revealed yet. Which means he will, eventually, so that's got to be coming soon-ish. Probably the next book, maybe not till the final book. He also says he has a family tree for them that he didn't put into the World of Ice and Fire or any of the other appendixes. So, we probably can expect to see a Dane family tree in the Winds of Winter appendix, which is, which makes it one of the most anticipated appendices of all time. <laughs> Getting hype about an appendix. Now that is the height of geekdom. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's take another live question here. From Left Hawk 4. Do you think the Rickon story is going anywhere, or is it indeed a shaggy dog story? <laughs> Great question. Okay, the shaggy dog story, to be clear what that means, is a shaggy dog story is a story that goes nowhere. It's a pointless story. That's the whole idea of it. It's it's a literary thing, or it's more of a joke thing. I don't know if it's truly... I guess it works as a literary thing. Whatever. So, the common theory was that George was making a joke when he first introduced all these Starks. There's a whole bunch of Starks that he went ahead and gave Rickon's pet's name Shaggy Dog to kind of indicate that, hey, this character's not important. So, strict from a strict interpretation, you could say, yeah, okay, that's probably what that means. That Rickon's not important. Shaggy Dog, not important. But there's a big problem with that theory. And that is George has really, really changed a lot of his original plans for the characters since he wrote that book. When he first conceived of the character Rickon and Shaggy Dog, there were only going to be three books, y'all. So I don't know that that he hasn't changed his mind. I don't. I kind of doubt that Rickon was going to go to Skagos in the original plan. I kind of doubt that Davos was going to go rescue him. I kind. I don't think any of that was part of the original plan. I just kind of don't think so. It could have been, but if it was part of the original plan, then he was never a Shaggy Dog story, though, was he? So I think that the original plan for Rickon and Shaggy Dog was just that, to be unimportant. But I think that things have changed. George has realized that Rickon is important. He's the heir to the North from a lot of people's perspectives. We know that Bran is alive, but as far as the characters in the story, in the North, they look at Rickon as the true Lord of Winterfell. Someone like Wyman Mandley takes that very seriously. So, yeah, that's where we're at. 
Here we go. I'll take another live question from John Evesham. Where does Aziz get all his great shirts? Are you guys considering merch? Uh, well, I get my shirts from a lot of different places, mostly through Ashea, <laughs> who gets them from a variety of great places like T-Fury and um, Society6. And a few other places, we have a friend who made this shirt. His name is David Medina. He's made a couple of the shirts I may, I've worn. Also, the really cool Blackwood shirt that you may have seen me wearing with the Werewood face. And we are considering merch, but we are... We've been considering it for two years. We've been trying to do a shirt for two years. We just can't settle on a design. So, hey, anyone out there you want to submit a design for us, we will not only give you all kinds of credit, but we would cut you in on some of that money because <laughs> it would be fun to sell a few shirts. It's, you can't make a lot of money selling shirts. It would just be more for fun than anything. But it would be cool to, to give you all some shirts out there. I, I know a few of you have asked us about that in the past. So sorry that we've continuously dropped the ball on that. But maybe one of these days we'll get our act together on the old T-shirt front. <laughs> okay, moving on. Go back to the prepared questions here. Uh, here from An Angel or Angel de Kagama. Apologies if I don't say your name right or any other names. I'm no expert at name pronunciation. After all, we have a cat named Jaken, not Jaken. <laughs> if Euron traveled to Karth and encountered the Warlocks and the House of the Undying, then maybe Euron isn't the Euron that left the Iron Islands. If Euron was given the name or the same tour of the House of the Undying as Danny, then maybe Euron was absorbed by the Undying in the same way that they were trying to do that with Daenerys. Daenerys had Drogon to protect her, and Euron didn't. Okay, well, this touches on a bit of the, you know, secret identity story. Although you're not saying that Euron is someone else. He's just, just a different character playing the role of Euron. So it's a little bit different than that. I can't say it's not possible. But the thing is, I don't think that the warlocks of Karth were... He, first of all, he didn't encounter them at the House of the Undying, according to him. He, he caught, captured a ship that, he, that, that, were, that had Pyat Pri and his three buddies. I don't know why they would want to give him a tour. The reason they gave Daenerys a tour is they were setting her up to steal her dragons. And Euron doesn't have dragons. So I don't know why the warlocks would, would care about doing that to him. Maybe they would. Maybe Who knows what the warlocks... They may have interests other than stealing dragons. It's in, it's in, in fact, that's likely. But I just don't know that we can go much farther than considering this a theory. I don't see any strong evidence for it. And the thing to think about here is that's what's happening. The, the warlocks were after the dragons. And when they were, when they were you know, stopped in that, with that ambition, it was, they, they continued that ambition. Daenerys got away, but they got in their ship, maybe grabbed this horn and went after her. They wanted revenge, but Euron captured them and heard the whole story and was like, you know what, guys? I like this stealing dragons idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and that's how we got where we're at. Okay, question from Mark Cahill. Since it takes years to become a maester, how long will Sam be at the Citadel before he heads back to the Wall? Sam's time in the Citadel is something the fandom at large has a lot of anticipation for. Um, kind of in the way we anticipate appendices with Danes in them is because we want Sam to look at some of these amazing ancient tomes and scrolls that are in the Citadel. He's right there. Just go. Go into the library, Sam. Read some books. Just have your POV just be you reading word for word some of these ancient books. But sadly, the most fatalistic view, and I think it's the most accurate view, is that the wall is going to come down and that Old Town is going to burn. Thanks, Euron. Sadly, I think both these things are going to happen in the Winds of Winter. And so Sam might have to flee Old Town 
but I don't know that he can go to the wall because it may not be there to go back to. <laughs> so I think he may flee to go back north to reconnect with the brothers, to join his brothers and fight the onset of the long night, but maybe not at the actual wall. Now, there's a lot of other ways this could play out. Based on the order things happen, you know, maybe the wall comes down before Old Town burns. If you believe poor Quentin, those two things could happen at the exact same moment, roughly speaking. And I think that's a strong theory. Either way, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time here. Euron's battle of blood is about to happen. And Sam is still just chilling at the Citadel, doing his thing. It looks like the attack on Old Town is coming soon. So I don't know that he's going to have a lot of time. I do not think he's going to fully become a maester. I think he's just going to stumble on or research a few very specific things. Maybe something about horns, maybe about the others, maybe even about dragons. I'm thinking more is going to do have to do with the others, that side of things, but you never know. Uh, so maybe a link or two is, is in his future, but a whole chain? I just don't seem to have enough time for that. So we'll have to see. He's going to be a witness to so many important things. In a place that seems like it would be mundane. It's like, oh, Sam's going to go to the quiet place in the library, Citadel, read all these books. No. <laughs> Ironborn attacking, flames, burning, death, worry. Come on, Sam, get out of there. Another one from Mark Cahill. This is a very good question. I apologize to some people who are not getting their questions answered when some people are getting more than one answered, but that is a function of some of these questions being answered in advance and I have more time to think about them. What will Lady Stoneheart's long-term fate be after the phrase have fallen? Now, uh, Lady Stoneheart has a bit of a revenant-like aspect to her, which means, well, a revenant is from myth and legend. It's a restless spirit that seeks to right a wrong. You know, like some sort of injustice. And when that wrong is righted, the revenant can rest. It can have its eternal sleep after all. Now, that's the part I'm not so sure about. Catelyn is, Stoneheart is absolutely all about killing Freys and any Lannisters and Bolton she can get her hand on too, although she's mostly only getting her hands on Freys right now. So, I don't want to take the idea too literally, but if she does deal with a bunch of Freys, maybe that will be her purpose. But here's the other thing. Beric Dondarrion passed his life force on to her. Maybe once she satisfies this goal of exacting revenge on the phrase, maybe she passes that life force on to something else, someone else, for them to complete some sort of purpose. Who? Uh, there's way too many possibilities to guess at here. But if you do have a good guess, if you think you have a guess that strikes you, you think is, stands out above the rest, feel free to comment on this episode or send us your thoughts on Twitter. Okay, Elizabeth from Patreon is our next question. Question asker, that is. Has our next question. I predict a claim about someone or something in or around Old Town is the third lie that Danny must slay. This quote, from a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. That is such a great quote that has inspired endless discussion. What the heck does it mean? One day, I, well, one day we may just be like, oh, it's that, and it'll be really obvious. But right now, pff, there's a lot of good guesses out there. And here's Elizabeth's take. The High Tower sigil is, quote, a white tower crowned with flames on a smoke gray, or on smoke gray. This is true. If you agree, do you think Euron, the High Towers, the Maesters of the Citadel, Faith of the Seven, Marwyn the Mage, Jaqen Hagar, or Alaris slash Sorella the Sphinx are involved in the third lie? Well, the High Tower is a great candidate for the Smoking Tower, for sure. We talked about that in the Euron episode. Poor Quentin had the idea that maybe Euron would blow a horn from atop the tower. And that, you know, I don't know how the Great Stone Beast taking wing gets involved in that. That's more of a 
dragon thing, whereas the horn on top of the wall, or horn on top of the high tower, seems like something that might bring down the wall. So we might be, this might be metaphorical, right? The the breathing shadow fire, maybe because Euron is going to have an associate with dragons by then. Hard to, hard to unpack all that. But absolutely, just from at the baseline, the high tower as a fit for that, and the fact that the the fact that we think bad things are coming for Old Town does fit that pretty well. Now, also, we did suggest in our episode on Euron that Euron's lies and deceptions are a great candidate to be slain by Danny. So I do think we're in the same neighborhood with that line of thinking. The Maesters of the Citadel—that's tricky. I wonder if they're going to be trying to kill the new dragons. That might be how they get involved. But really. I don't know about that. And the Faith of the Seven, well, maybe she slays that lie in terms of proving that there aren't any seven gods, really. But Daenerys taking out a whole religion seems a bit much, because religion dies hard. You can't just tell people to stop worshipping a god. They do not obey those type of orders, generally speaking, even with the threat of violence. Just look at the history of religion and telling people what they can and can't worship. It never goes well. So I don't really think going that far is, is on the table, but I do think that this raises a lot of questions about who the players are at Old Town and how that interacts with the symbology of the high tower. And that great smoking tower quote. And I think that maybe we can't piece it fully together, but to consider these ideas working together in some way is definitely worth it. And I would also agree that Alaris slash Sorella Sphinx is really puzzling. Because sure, that could be a lie worth slaying. But right now she's just like a PhD student. That's like the equivalent of what she is. Like how is she that important? It's really hard to see. But hey, George is really creative. And maybe we just haven't come up with the right theory for why she could be so important. Maybe when it happens, we'll be like, oh, that was great. That We should have seen that coming. Who knows? But nothing to do but wait. Okay, some more live chat questions. Thanks again to everybody joining us live today. Really appreciate submitting the questions and uh, helping make this event great. It's a lot of fun to take live questions. It's a bit of a change from our heavily researched scripted episodes. It's fun to have a few different looks from time to time. So another shout out to our patrons who make things like this possible. Getting, yeah, thumbs up from the side there. <laughs> Making this possible for us all. So everybody, thanks again. Questions from Mr. Creeper 97 Was Danny really raised in Dorne? I think that was a popular theory that citrus trees don't grow up in Pentos Bravos. This is a popular sort of theory that's been raised because of a quote in The Winds of Winter. It's, it, well... It was raised before that, but that this theory got a lot more ammunition when a couple of the Lannister guards are overheard talking about how lemons don't grow in Bravos. Uh, Arya overhears this. Uh, however, I think that maybe George just accidentally confused the muddied the waters, or maybe he's trying to confuse people on purpose. But I, I don't think so. I don't think she was raised in Dorne. I really don't. I don't think that her memory is going to be that bad. There's no reason why. The lemon tree can't be in Bravos, despite what I just said, because it's specifically mentioned that wealthy people, especially people like the Sea Lord of Bravos, who was known to have spent a lot of money on, you know, his luxuries to have fruit trees. It's called in, in the gardens of the wealthy. So, well, Daenerys was staying with the Sea Lord at this time. That's where the red door was, according to her memories. And what's I don't see the purpose of her being raised in Dorne. What would be the literary purpose of hiding this from the reader? If we we're to, if it was revealed, it was like, oh wow, she was actually raised in Dorne rather than Bravos. 
wait, well, well, what does that mean? I don't think it means anything. And so that's part of why I'm against it, a little bit against it or down on the idea because I don't see the point. What? Why keep that hidden from us? Again, George, hella creative. Maybe I'm just not seeing the angle. Maybe George will be like, ah, this is why it's important that she was actually raised in Dorne because she's slowly going insane or something like that. But I'm not sure I buy the Danny going insane slowly thing. The visions are something, her having all these random visions from Quaithe, but I think that's a glass candle thing. I think that she's being, that's being put into her head. I don't think it's uh, her own brain ceasing to work properly, but it's possible. It is absolutely possible that Daenerys, like we said, uh, the earlier question that was asked about something happening to maybe make Daenerys snap, like the de defiance of Duskendale. Maybe something drives her mad. It could happen. Something really horrible she loses her, she loses Drogon, maybe Drogon dies and there's some sort of bond between them and the dragon. There's no evidence that that sort of thing exists because we've seen dragon riders lose their dragons before in the Dance of the Dragons. Now, we didn't see in those people's heads, but there was no mention of, uh, you know, he became depressed because his dragon is dead and he and it, they felt that inside internally. We don't know. And Sansa, you know, misses Lady, but she doesn't have this sort of hollow spot where it's like this missing limb or something like that. It's just a painful memory. It's not like a magically painful memory. Okay. J.S.H. Blackfire, Blackfire asks, here's a huge question, honestly. If Euron knows that Victorian will probably try to betray him, then what is he planning? This is why there are so many theories about the dusky woman. Because Euron gave her to him and the thinking is that she's his agent she's not just a sex slave that knows how to wrap wounds she had that really visceral reaction to seeing Makoro which was very telling and well figuring out Euron's plans is tricky because Euron is is a genius and there's a reason we don't get POVs from characters who know too much I don't know what he's planning I am just ultra confident about the first part that yes he knows Victorian will probably try to betray him he understands psychology and his brother is one of the easiest people to read Victorian is so very simple-minded Euron predicted probably every reaction Victorian would have throughout this whole process he's probably right about most of them and he's probably also predicted some of the ways that Victorian will try to portray him in terms of he knows he's going to try to maybe steal the dragon for himself, steal Daenerys for himself. That's the more obvious one, stealing Daenerys for himself, because it's like, hey, I'm taking back a woman from you when you took one from me. That's just about as cut and dry as it gets. I really don't know how he's going to pull that off, though. I really don't know how he's going to, you know, get the, the dragons on his side. Maybe the horn is already bound to him. Maybe the horn is going to have some entirely different effect. Maybe there, there's one theory out there that the that this uh that the dusky woman is a faceless man i really doubt that idea but <laughs> it's possible i will not say it's not possible i'm just uh I, I would just put that one in the slim to none margin okay elko de boer again apologize if the name is not said right do you think ghost grass will be mentioned again and will it play a role for example in danny's or the dothraki's understanding of the real threat very interesting. Is there a connection between Ghost Grass and the original Long Night or any of the magic associated with some of these ancient cultures and these ancient magics? It seems to be a, a force of nature corrupted by some sort of magical element that is still in play. Uh, like the shadow itself, perhaps, is that. We don't know exactly what the shadow is, but it sounds like some area that's ruined by magic that people can't go there because it's tainted. 
But I don't know that ghost grass will become important because there's none of it over on this side of the world. If we start to see it grow, ooh, that would be like, whoa, there's ghost grass growing right when the, where the long night is, you know, starting to take hold. That would be something. I would be a little surprised to see that, but it would be, it would be very chilling. So let's just wait and see on that one. I don't know, but this does raise another question, though, to me. How are the Dithraki going to respond to various cultural factors in Westeros? I really wonder how they're going to handle the cold. <laughs> they're all riding around, you know, in their painted vests. They're, they're not, like, shirtless like they are on the TV show, but they're pretty much shirt, like little thin painted vests. They're not very big, so they're mostly shirtless. So they're going to have to adapt to <laughs> a few things beyond just the culture. The weather will also matter. Okay, here is a question from Grovand. I know saying these things to strangers on the internet is usually a bad idea, but with vagueness, where do you live? What's your job? Really curious. Love the show. Okay, well, we live in Roswell, Georgia. That is a suburb of Atlanta. It is not associated with Roswell, New Mexico, although that would be cool if we lived in the uh, alien city. And this is now my full-time job. Ashea is a, it's her part-time job. She's also a full-time student. And I have been able to, I used to be a professional poker player. I used to be an IT consultant. But um, over the years of doing the history of Westeros, started making a little money at it. People, uh, we we'd fairly regularly, people said, hey, you should try to do this full-time if you, if you can. And the first year of trying to make money at this, at uh, doing this, was 2015, and we did okay. It wasn't nearly a full living, but it was enough to squeak by and to to see that the growth was coming, and it has. The growth has continued. Our patrons are wonderful. We occasionally have a sponsor, you know, a corporate sponsor, and that's nice when it happens. We can't rely on that though because it's intermittent. So really, the patrons are our real sponsors, and that's what makes this this show work. I know we say it a lot. It sounds like lip service, but it's 100% true. I mean, we without the without that income, I I would have to be doing something else to make money and yeah we're not um we're, we're really happy that we can do this we're really thankful and uh yeah i just feel lucky and another question faisal ahmad when will you be doing the blood raven episode i like your black fire shoes well thank you faisal we um the blood raven episode is going to be complicated it's going to be long and the more i think about it the more i think it's going to be two episodes because he's 125 years old now that's two um, we, we, we even cover characters who lived in the, to be about 30 and do a whole episode on them so and they do a whole lot less i mean so I think we're going to do a Blood Raven episode that pertains to the Blackfire series. To, all his stuff after joining the Watch really doesn't have anything to do with Blackfire stuff much at all. So that would be a good division point. So we'll do a, it's going to be part seven of the Blackfire series, Blood Raven. That wraps it up. But then we'll do a second look at Blood Raven down the road where it involves his post-Blackfire stuff. That one, I don't know when that's going to come, but it'll be after the first one. And the first one, our target is going to be before October. I think September. I think this the show will be done by August. September will be the target for that because I don't think... I think it'll be... It's too complicated of a topic for us to work on while we're doing so much Game of Thrones coverage. But I want to get it out before October because October is when we get the Sons of the Dragon publication. And of course, once that out, once that comes out, that's going to be our focus until we've got that covered. So I really would like to get Blood Raven done before that. So I'm going to say September... I've gotten in trouble by promising dates on episodes before, so don't hold me to that. Please, uh, I really hope that we can get it done by then. But if not, uh, I apologize in advance. Yeah, I see a question here from Smokescreen. It was similar to a question that we've already answered with the God's Eye, so I won't repeat that. But hey, buddy, we're looking forward to seeing you at Con of Thrones as well. See you soon. 
Question from Inside Lewin Martell. Who uses the term meta more in their work? History of Westeros or Dan Harmon? <laughs> That's a fantastic question because I really have used it a lot today, haven't I? I think maybe I need a new word to describe some of this. Meta is like a general word for anything that's not about, the, that describes an effort to figure out what's happening in the story using details from outside the story. That's kind of what I mean. Usually that's what we mean by it. In other words, like when we examine the details around what George had in mind with the five-year gap, it really enlightens us on what his plans were, like the stuff with Edric Storm. But, you know, Dan Harmon uses the word meta a lot too. Um, someone's going to have to do a word count. Someone will have to get back to us on that. Someone out there, do a, do a word count for us. <laughs> okay. Here's one from Toby Moss. Do you think the others could take control of the mountain to kill Cersei? Well then, that's an interesting one. I don't think they would do it to kill Cersei. Although, I mean, they they wouldn't hesitate to kill Cersei. I don't think they would specifically do that to target Cersei. Although I can see why you would say that because what you're uh, let me let me back this up a little bit. What you might be suggesting here is that first of all that the others can control undead beings, which I think is a very good theory. I think that very much could happen. They should be able to control just about any dead thing. I don't so I don't know why Gregor would be any different just because he was made by Kyburn. And that would be really interesting if, like, Kyburn's control over Gregor is split. Like, he's taking commands from two different things. That's really neat. But, uh, and, and of course, if, like the others, targeted Lord Commander Mormont and the First Ranger with Othor and Jafer Flowers, those bodies that were brought through the wall that rose in the night in, in uh, Game of Thrones, well... That, I think that's what uh, the questioner, Toby Moss, is getting at here. We're thinking, well, if they could do that, why not take over the mountain and take out the queen? Yeah, I could see that happening. I mean, it, it's maybe, I don't know that the others are going to need help with Cersei. I think other people are going to take out Cersei. But, wow, that would be really cool. Just the general idea of them taking over the mountain is terrifying. You know, I mean, it's, it's up there with them having real ice spiders or something. Whatever these other beings they're going to unleash on the Seven Kingdoms. I have long considered... At some point, we're going to see this. We've already seen it on a smaller scale, but we're going to see a beloved character as a white. Someone that someone beyond just a random brother of the Night's Watch. We're going to see someone we actually know well. I really hope it's not like Ed. Dollar is Ed or something like that. But we're going to see that. We're going to see a POV come face-to-face -face with whites, and they're going to be recognizable whites. Like people that, they, that we know, that we used to know, and it's going to be painful. <laughs> so if one of them is the mountain, well, that wouldn't be painful so much as... Whoa, get the hell out of there. Throw some fire on that thing. <laughs> get just, ah, scary. Okay, here's an interesting question. Kind of a slightly off-topic, well, very off-topic question, but I'll take it anyway. Mr. Creeper 97, have you read Dune and do you think it could make a good HBO TV series like Game of Thrones? Yeah, I, I mean, HBO generally does a great job on, on things, even epics like Game of Thrones, which has been heavily criticized. Look, if you take away the books, I think it's a great show. I think it's a good show anyway, and I would, I, I'm a fan of the show despite having a lot of criticisms for it. Like, I, I think it's, there's nothing separating. There's no reason you can't criticize something and love it at the same time. I do think they could do a job of it. I think the movie Dune was... You can't cover Dune in a movie. It's just too short. There's not enough. There's too much there to do it. And I think one of the reasons people, uh, Dune fans and Game of Thrones fans have some things in common is because Dune is very big on the political intrigue. It's really excellently written. And George R. R. Martin is a fan of it. He says it's great. Uh, but I, to, to fully answer the question, though, no, I haven't read beyond the original book. I haven't read the prequels or sequels or any of the extended material. So just Dune alone, though, yeah. If, if HBO picked that up, I would be very happy and I would probably want to have suggested that we cover it with our show Fandom Media. Okay. Uh, Swizzlesticks asks, 
In A Storm of Swords, they mention the Valyrian Steel Axe of the Celtigars and a horn to summon monsters from the deep. Will we see these again? I think so. Maybe not the specific one, specific ones, but I think we will. I think the idea of that horn to summon monsters from the deep was floated, floated, <laughs> was suggested so that when Euron brings Krakens up, it's not a, out of nowhere. Um, it's been mentioned a few times. It's one of those things that's been sort of hinted at subtly a few times in a few different places. And you know how we feel about things that are subtly mentioned more than once. And this is more than twice. This is probably mentioned like two or three times. The Valyrian Steel Axe, that, I, I don't know about that. I, I don't know if we'll see that. We've seen a Valyrian Steel Arak. And I think if, if it gets out that Valyrian Steel is more useful against the others, then we may see... We may see a lot more of Valyrian steel weapons being brought out from their families. That's that's one relic that a lot of these houses have kept. But we know but Valyrian steel isn't thousands of years old in terms of Westeros for the most part. So I think we'll see things like that horn, maybe not that specific one. And I think we'll see other Valyrian steel weapons, maybe not that specific one. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen in the Narrow Sea. Euron could bring his fleet around that side and start pillaging. He loves to go after those small islands because there no one can come. No one knows it's happening. You can attack a small island. No one's aware of it. They can take everything they want. Still no one's aware of it. And it's like a miniature base for them. Kind of like what they did at the Isle of Pigs. So Celtigar Isle, Claw Isle, that, they, yeah, that could happen. John Huffs. Is there any chance Tyrion might get grayscale of the tongue? He has repeatedly threatened to have his tongue removed and he did swallow water in the sorrows. This is built off of the Quiet Lion Theory, Hamfast 42, uh, was one of the originators of that, if not the originator. And we we have discussed this a little bit before, um, but it's a good time to, let's see, get this a little straighter maybe. The idea that he will lose his tongue to grayscale, I don't think is going to happen. But I do think that the idea behind that theory might be accurate. In other words, the idea that he will lose his tongue. I just think it's a lot more likely that if he loses his tongue, it'll be because of Euron. The man who loves to remove tongues, who I think he's got to, just as Ramsey comes on screen, he's going to torture someone. He tortured Theon. And these other characters, like the mountain comes on screen and becomes an undead beast. He's got to do some damage before someone takes him out. He's not just going to come on screen, look intimidating, and then be burned burned and be done. So Euron is going to cut some tongues out. And it's probably not just going to be poor Failure Flowers and a few other people who we don't know. It's probably going to be people we care about, at least one. And, God, I really hope it's not Tyrion, but the, the people like Hamfast42 and others who have gathered the clues that make it look like Tyrion might lose his tongue, they looked for how this could happen, a mechanism. Because the evidence is there. It's suggested in several places that I, I can't really get into here without having the quotes and some preparing some research. But... It, it, there's a lot of hints for that possibility. And so they went looking for a mechanism and they thought, hey, well, here's a way that he could lose his tongue. He swallowed water. And that is a valid theory. But I just think that if we're being simple, if we're looking for a simpler explanation, if we're going by Occam's razor, <laughs> Occam's Valyrian steel razor, Euron's razor, is more likely to be responsible for some tongues, especially Tyrion's, than Grayscale. However, both could happen. Tyrion, Euron could cut out some tongues, not Tyrion's. Tyrion could lose his tongue to Grayscale. But... I think the grayscale, Tyrion not catching grayscale might be more along the lines of, hey, hey, Targaryen blood, you know, he's not getting sick. Yeah, might be a hint for that, but who knows. All right, next question. Immortal is the name of the questioner here. Do you think that Bran will freak out when he realizes that the children of the forest are sacrificing people to the werewoods? Yes, yes, yes. Especially if the Jojen Pace theory is true and he's already eaten Jojen. I mean... That'll be a bigger thing to freak out over. 
Uh, and it'll be even sadder because he's probably just going to buy in eventually. He'll be like, if this is how it is, if this is how I have to save mankind, or this is how I have to do what needs to be done, so be it. But, oh, man, that's going to be rough to have to accept that, to have to accept that sacrifice was necessary or may be necessary again. I mean, yikes. I Brand's poor brand. I mean... We talked about how Arya, like, what would the Ghost of High Heart, Ghost of High Heart looked at Arya and freaked out? What would happen if she looked at Bran? <laughs> Might be pretty bad. Might be like what Melisandre saw. Melisandre's vision of Bran was a wolf-headed boy and the, you know, face in the tree that she thought they were, you know, evidence of the Great Other. Yeah. <laughs> Just picture, picture the Ghost of High Heart seeing that or something like it. Okay, we'll continue going here. Here is... Hero 75. The wildlings have 300 plus mammoths that are going around the wall. People seem to have forgotten about them. Could they become a major force for the north? Good question. I think it's, it's, it's very important to note that the wall does not keep wildlings out. It keeps large groups of wildlings out. Remember where Osha came from. She was with some brothers who fled and they were trying to make their way as far south as possible. They were fleeing the, fleeing the wall. They were fleeing the others. They didn't go through the gate. They didn't walk through Castle Black and say, hey guys, we're just passing through. Never mind us. They went around it. It's just narrow passageway. It's treacherous. You got to go through this gorge necessarily. There's ways to do it. It's just, it's a hard, but small groups can do it. So with these mammoths, hmm, that is going to be interesting. I'm not sure whether they'll be stopped. I guess they're maybe using, I forget which mechanism they're using. They might be using that bridge of skulls, which is what the weeper was trying to cross the wall around cross around the wall there and Bowen Marsh and some other brothers met them there and drove them back. Uh, so yeah, I do think the the mammoths are going to be important because how could they not be? I mean, you you can't just have these giant creatures that just sit there. So I think it'll be interesting to see because we're also going to see elephants imported by the Golden Company in the south. So there'll be elephants in the south, mammoths in the north, and maybe in between the two shall meet. <laughs> From inside Lewin Martell. That's an interesting place to be. <laughs> Do you think Euron might get his hands on a chunk of the infamous greasy black stone? Considering his Bloodstone Emperor parallels and love of ancient artifacts, possibly during the sack of Old Town. Well, he he might. I mean, he's, he's the Sea Stone Chair was there for him. Maybe he, it really depends on the, the what this stuff can do. He may know. He may have some insight as to what, what it can do. And, or maybe he just wants to use it as a, you know, symbolically, but if it has power, if it's useful, Euron will want to do that. I'll put it, let's put it that way. Euron will leave no stone unturned, greasy, black, or not, in achieving power. He wants power. He will use any means to get it. So if he thinks greasy, black stone will get him there, he won't hesitate. And I like the idea that because of the Bloodstone Emperor parallels, that this is a potential connection. I'm 100% sure that there's some things in Old Town and they're probably artifacts, if not information, that old, that Euron wants. Some things he may be specifically looking for. Some things he might be like, oh, hey, look at this. I didn't know this existed. I'm going to use this to as part of my dastardly plans. Following up on a previous question, Frankie Rowe, will Ned Dane have any effect on the final story? I expressed ambivalence about this because I, I think that if he was just replaced by Darkstar, then I could see him becoming a complete nothing. Let me take that back. Not a complete nothing. His name has always been very telling, right? Why? If Ned 
Stark is responsible for the death of Arthur Dane and possibly shaming Ashara or someone else in his family, maybe shaming Ashara or whatever happened with Ashara. Fact is, Ned Dane was born. Edric Dane was born after this. Thus, they specifically nicknamed him Ned, knowing that Ned is this maybe bad guy in terms of the Danes. Ned came, but Ned Stark returned Dawn to Starfall, and that was an honorable thing to do. They respected him. They respected Ned. So whatever happened between Ned and the Dane family, they came out of it feeling a sense of respect for him. And so strong a sense of respect. I mean, even that, though, isn't maybe going far enough. Just because you have a sense of respect for someone doesn't mean you go name your children after them. <laughs> I mean, it didn't name, the kid's not named Eddard, it's Edric, but it's still nicknamed Ned. And that is very telling. And it's the way it's introduced is very telling. Arya hears that name and she's like, whoa. It, it's, it's described, I think it was chilling to her. But that still doesn't mean I think he's going to be important to the story. The whole five-year gap is just too complicated in terms of determining what George's plan for Ned Dane was because his, his plan for Ned Dane almost clearly changed. I do think there's a very strong chance that when everything is said and done, when the dust settles, when the snow is gone, well, maybe snow won't come to Starfall, he will be Lord of Starfall by the end of things. Maybe he'll recover Dawn from Darkstar or maybe by the end, Dawn will be gone. Who knows? Anyway, moving on. We'll take a couple more, and then we'll say goodbye. Lord of Last Hearth. Since it's pretty much been confirmed that Jane Westerling is going to be going to be the Winds of Winter, Winds of Winter prologue, do you think there will be a rescue attempt by the Blackfish or the Brotherhood Without Banners on her journey to Casterly Rock? Okay, well, I don't think it's been confirmed that Jane Westerling is going to be the Winds of Winter prologue. It's been confirmed that she will be in the prologue. So, or almost confirmed that she'll be in the prologue. So it doesn't necessarily be that it's going to be... Her point of view. But I'm not sure. Maybe that's just the way you worded it. I, I think that it will be someone like Forley Prester or someone in that group. And someone who's going to die. So it doesn't have to be an important character. Because I don't think Jane Westerling is going to die in this prologue. So yes. To answer your question. I think it will be the Blackfish. Will ab- that People wonder what the Blackfish is doing. Some people think he's going to go north. I really, really don't think so. The Blackfish's expertise is in knowing the countryside, in preparing ambushes, in scouting. And he knows he knows the Riverlands. He doesn't know the North. And he's a Tully. He Certainly he supports the king in the North. She's still the queen of the North. And, you know, maybe the Blackfish... You know, there's that whole thing about her hips, and that was just a mistake. George messed that up. He admits it. Jane probably isn't pregnant. But still, she's the queen of the North. And that matters. So I do think there's a very good chance this is what happens... But the problem is, before that happens, we need to see how the Blackfish is going to react to Lady Stoneheart. Uh, but maybe that can be done in retro, retroactively or shown later. But I do think the Blackfish will hook up with the Brotherhood and the Brotherhood will be immensely helped by his presence because of his particular skill set is going to be super valuable to what they're doing. And I'm really excited to see this. I also wonder if maybe... If the Brotherhood doesn't lead this ambush, if Blackfish doesn't, we might be seeing Nymeria. We might be seeing Nymeria get involved. That, speaking of another Chekhov's, Chekhov's wolf, Nymeria's going to do something. Nymeria's going to be important. Arya still has wolf dreams of Nymeria, even in the Winds of Winter. It's the first, her, the first thing in her first Winds of Winter chapter is her dreaming about Nymeria again. She has more wolf dreams than Bran even, don't forget. Geek Furious, hey buddy. If Nettles could tame Sheepstealer, then doesn't that mean the importance of Bloodline resides where dragons believe it resides? Y- yes. I don't think there's a... I don't think that a lot of people have approached the situation with 
everything that needs to be in mind in mind. And what I mean by that is it can be both. Like Geek Furious is getting at here, having Blood of the Dragon is clearly a leg up, if, if not a requirement. It might be a requirement. I don't think it is because Nettles, I think, is the example that proves that you don't have to have Blood of the Dragon. She might have Blood of the Dragon. People say, oh, she's brown skin. How could she have? Oh, come on. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> brown Ben Plum is brown and he has Targaryen blood. Okay, let's just set that, let's just set that to rest right now. If you can tame a dragon by befriending it, like that's what a appears to be what happened with nettles maybe she had dragon blood we still know but it appears she won sheep stealer over by the same means that maybe the original targaryens not the original targaryens apologize the original valyrians tamed dragons somehow the valyrians got their relationship with dragons we put out some some theories in the great empire of the dawn but what i love about the sheep stealer concept. George named him, named her sheep stealer. I think he had a really important reason for that. And it's Valyrian shepherds are the ones who originally tamed dragons. And this dragon is named sheep stealer. And I think we're meant to kind of make those, make that connection. I am definitely of the belief that you don't have to have dragon blood to tame a dragon, but it's way easier if you do. Okay, yes. Last question. So again, I apologize to anyone who didn't get your questions answered. Next time, folks, you can send your questions in advance and that will make it more likely that you get your question answered because it gives me more time to think about it. This last question is semi-show related. It's, we're not, I'm not going to speak about anything specifically in the show, but it's a it's kind of a approach to figuring out things. It's a, this is a meta thing. <laughs> question comes from Chris Wilkins. I know this is semi-show related, but how much weight should we as book readers take in events from the show as evidence of what may happen in the books? For example, if we see Euron and Cersei teaming up on the show, should we take that into consideration as evidence when looking at the possibility of them teaming up in the books and so on with other theories? Yes, we should pretty much always at least consider what happens in the show as possibly what's going to happen in the books. There's some cases where it's clearly not going to happen. Brendan Blackfish. We just talked about Blackfish. Whatever happens with the Blackfish in the books, clearly very different than what happens in the show because he's dead in the show. Fagon, the whole egg on the sixth plot is not in the show. But even that has caused some people to say, oh, that plot's not important because it's not in the show. I don't think we can go that far. And besides, what's important is, uh, is that's up to the eye of the beholder. Important is, in this case, we're talking about what's entertaining, you know? Uh, a lot of things we kind of know are going to happen. You know, I don't read, I don't read A Song of Ice and Fire for the surprises. I read it because it's really amazingly written, because the characters are awesome, because the background is super well-developed, because it feels consistent internally. There's a lot of reasons why, I mean, the plot, I love too, but I don't reread to be surprised, right? Nobody rereads to be surprised. You reread it because you love it, because you want to immerse yourself in that story again. And so the fact that Aegon isn't part of the show, that's just what, that was just a choice made by the showrunners. It's going to be, he's going to be a major point of conflict for Daenerys and for others, and then he's going to be really interesting. So important, well... I don't even know what that means, to be honest. Important or not, I, I'm going to have a lot of fun reading about Aegon the Sixth. And in the show, in general, I think the rule of thumb is if it's a major plot point, a major death, it's probably going to happen in the show. That's why I feel pretty confident that Doran Martell is going to be killed by the Sand Snakes. And the reason I include Darkstar in that is, well, Darkstar's not in the book, but Darkstar's clearly trying to stir shit up. He's trying to do that kind of stuff. So 
it just makes sense that he would team up with the Sand Snakes. If they're going to do that, if, if, if what happens in the show happens in the books, it just makes sense for Darkstar to be in on that. With the Ironborn, it's tricky because Euron seems to be a lot less magical than he does in the books. So the Euron plot might be one that's harder to find parallels for. But the example given here by Chris is Euron and Cersei teaming up. I can see that happening. I could definitely see that happening because Euron would certainly welcome any ally that gives him power, probably with the intent to eventually betray that ally. But nonetheless, power is power. And if Euron can use it, he'll use it. If Cersei's like, hey, let's team up, he'll be, yeah, um, let me see what I can get out of this. He's like, this is an opportunity. And he hasn't muddied the waters yet. He didn't attack Lannisport. As we pointed out in the Euron episode, he specifically went uh, went around it. He did, ignored it. He attacked uh, the Shield Islands. And now he's attacking all along the southern coast. He's attacking the Arbor. He's attacking some of these smaller islands. That's where his focus is. And so he hasn't exactly uh, made the, the Lannisters hate him so much that it's irredeemable as far as a p- political ally. So in general, yeah, the show does unfortunately tell us quite a bit. But that's why I went on and on about why the plot points aren't the thing that we should get so worried about. Because the books are going to be amazing. Even if we know a couple of big things that are coming. Even if we know a few major plot points. Even if we know Blanky Blank is going to die later. We're not going to know how. We're not going to know when. It's going to be different. The circumstances, the people, the things that we're going to read about it, the characters' thoughts on it, their suffering, the way they process it. It's going to be different even when it's the same. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. It's an important thing to keep in heart. And it's, it's, it might be a great thing to tell yourself in order to keep your own sanity as season seven approaches and we get worried about, oh, what is the show going to spoil this time? Don't worry about it too much. As far as I'm concerned, the farther away we get from the books, the less the books are going to, the less the show is going to spoil them, even though they are going to spoil certain things. One of the things I mentioned earlier in this episode, Night's King probably isn't a thing in the books at all. Just a a figure from legend. Maybe it's going to be more of a a legendary consideration for what a a character that we know ends up playing this role, you know, repeating history rather than there being a boss other. So that's a huge difference potentially. TV just wants to present as some big main villain, but we don't have to have that in the books. We might, but I don't think we will. So within these little differences are big differences. And within plot spoilers we still have the huge list of things that we love about A Song of Ice and Fire that aren't ruined or even barely tainted by learning a few plot things ahead of time. All right, that was our last question. With that, I leave you with that positive thought on how to separate books and show, how to also, while also making predictions between the two and while keeping your sanity while we continue to wait for the winds of winter. That's that, folks. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate supporting the show live and in all the different many ways you do. Yep, thanks again to Shea. appreciate you uh, queuing up these questions. She did a lot of great work here off camera, getting the show ready, making it look good, and making it so I don't fumble around looking for the next question, which was kept to a minimum. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a zero, but I, I only fumbled around a little bit. Okay, so... Thanks, everybody, again. We will be back soon with more episodes. Again, Blackfish will be next. And we'll be also coming out with some show material. We'll be doing a preview episode, possibly two. And we'll have a Q&A during the season as well. It's certainly show-oriented ones. 
And we might be recording some of our panels at Con of Thrones. That is an, a maybe in the maybe category. But if they do get recorded, they'll be going up on our feed in one way or another, even either even if they're just audio only. Uh, but hopefully we also get video. Um, but in one way or another, hopefully we capture some of that and we can share it with y'all. And those of you who can make it in person, well, that's even better. So we'll be looking out for that. And until next time, Valar Reredis, thanks for supporting History of Westeros. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld of Claradox.de for the video intro and the maps that you see behind us. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kobal for the intro and outro music, respectively. Thanks to the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Welcome to our first ever Blood Rider, Kohokoi, Master of the Bow, called Sun Piercer. Kohokoi's sister's ex-husband Kevin was given a treatment worthy of Viserys himself. Crown of Molten Gold. Good riddance. Our small council is Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. Thanks also to Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Mary Meg is the Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty is still Lord of the Breadford. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is a Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawkside Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance for Game of Thrones Ascent, the Facebook game. Lord Barone of Hillcrest, Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete, Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne is of Castle Werewood, our roots run deep. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Lord Imriel is of House Jordain, and Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands. Last Scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. The Lord Commander of the History of Westeros Kingsguard is Sir Christopher Dane of Starfall, Sentinel of the Torrentine. The History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Dan. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. We now have two episodes that are for patrons or donators only. If you would like to get access to those, sign up for Patreon at any level and you'll get them. If you want to get them manually, just send us a donation through the PayPal link on our website, historyofwesteros.com, and we'll send them to you through a link. For other ways to support the show, historyofwesteros.com's got quite a few. You can, for example, shop through our Amazon links, and anything you buy through Amazon, whether it's one of the suggested items we have there or not, is going to give us a little bit of credit and help out the show. And you'll see there that we've got a list of quite a few Game of Thrones, I Song of Ice and Fire related books, side material, games, things like that. Lots of fun stuff, stuff that we recommend, stuff that we've used ourselves. That's it for now. See you next time. Again, Valar Reredis. Reredis.